bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselles, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, que passe, mi amigos, shalom, namaste, wassalam alaikum, konnichiwa, Wendell's World in Sports. With yours truly, Wendell Wallace is the most thought-provoking, entertaining podcast, sports talk podcast that you can listen to. I talk about the NFL, I talk about college football, I talk about the NBA, I talk about college basketball, I talk about the loves of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas, I talk about UFC, MMA, AEW, WWE, and sometimes I just might go ahead and talk about what else is happening in the world, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, download, subscribe, rate, review, and enjoy. The man who brings it with the plan, Wendell's World in Sports. Download, rate, review, and enjoy anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast. Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. I'm excited, man. I am rip-roaring and ready to go. I truly am. I really am. From the bottom of my heart, I really am. But before I do, before I get into this whole Brian Flores situation, before I get into the retirement of Tom Brady, before I get into Daniel Snyder making a fool out of himself again, and before I get into all of this rigmarole about James Harden going to the Philadelphia 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets' possibility of trading James Harden to the Philadelphia 76ers by Thursday, the trade deadline, the NBA trade deadline. Before I get into any of that stuff, man, you know what I gotta go. You know where I gotta go, right? Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Thank you very much. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Good morning, good Abin Wendell's World of Sports. Yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Thank you so much for listening. Special dedication, Kunishiwa, Namaste, Shalom, Wassalam Alaikum, Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. I hope that you're doing everything that you need to do to make your world, to make your neighborhood, to make your household, to make your community, to make your neighborhood a better place to be through love, peace, unity, harmony, understanding, finding those of a different race, a different gender, different political background, different uh, financial background, loving somebody else you might not approve of, uh, you know, different side of the track, all of those things. If you could please have that difficult conversation with them and if you could please give them the respect of the words and the wisdom that they're trying to give you so you can go ahead and too late for my generation, too late for your generation, but if we could go ahead and convey those words of knowledge and peace and unity and harmony and respect for everyone to the our children so they can pass it on to their children, maybe this world can have a better place. Maybe this world could have a chance in the next 10 15, 20, 40, 60, 80 years and beyond. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just also want to uh, mention before I get into what I'm going to be speaking about on the podcast today, 
the YouTube episode of Wendell's World in Sports. You can see this beautiful face. You can see this Hollywood sex symbol right here. No, as I mentioned before, every time you click on to Wendell's World in Sports and go to my YouTube channel and you see me out there speaking, it's no, that's not Denzel Washington from 1992. No, no that's not Will Smith from uh, 1999. No, uh-uh. no, it's not some fashion model. No, it's not some Hollywood sex symbol. No, it's just... It's just yours truly, Wendell Wallace, spitting about what's happening in the world of sports. And you know what? With this being Black History Month, I'm going to uh, give a little shout out to two of my heroes outside of the world of sports. I'm going to do something on Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. 1964, 1967, December 10th. Both of them died on those days, three years apart. So I want to uh, just give my shout out and I just want to give my education about the importance of those two men and what it means, what they meant to not only the society that they lived in back then, but while they how they paved the way for us to live in the society that we have now, the good, the great, and trying to get better. So on my YouTube channel very soon, I'm going to be putting that down as well as speaking about what's happening in the world of sports. Que Paso, you good? You're all right? Fantastic. Wendell's World in Sports. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. All right. Let me see here. Let me get into what I want to talk about today. Man, this Brian Flores cat, formerly of the Miami Dolphins, the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. He's got some stones. He's got some uh, fortitude, man. Filed a class action lawsuit against the NFL and his teams this past week, accusing them of sham interviews, incentivizing losses, and pressure to improperly recruit players. Brian Flores has sued the NFL and three teams, the Denver Broncos, the New York Giants, and the Miami Dolphins, alleging discrimination regarding his interview process, or, yeah, his interview process with Denver and New York, and his firing last month by Miami. The 58-page lawsuit was filed in Manhattan, New York, federal court this past Tuesday and seeks class action status. All right. All right, so here's the thing that, um, I, I didn't read all 58 pages, I'm sorry, but here's the thing that's very interesting, because in the suit that was filed, when you're speaking about uh, discrimination, when you're speaking about sham interviews, when you're speaking about all of these things, the meat, the crux of the reason for him to go ahead and do this is because he's looking for, Coach Flores is trying to be the the trailblazer. He's trying to be the leader. He's going to be that guy. He's going to try to be that Jackie Robinson. He's going to try to be that Joe Lewis. He's going to try to be that Jack Johnson. He's going to try to be that Jesse Owens. He's going to try to be that Kurt Flood. He's going to try to be that Muhammad Ali. He's going to try to be that Colin Kaepernick. He's going to try to be that Althea Gibson. He's going to try to be that uh, Billie Jean King in terms of Martina Navratilova. In terms of being the guy, when we look back in the history books, and we see for the 2042 NFL season, and we see with 30, by then, it's, I guess it's going to be, what, 42 teams in the NFL by then? Out of those 42 teams, we're going to see 33 black head coaches, and we're going to see a plethora of offensive and defensive coordinators who are black and who are Hispanic and who are Asian and who are gay and who are women, that we're going to look back and say, when did this turn happen for the NFL to diversify itself in terms of his hiring practices, we're going to take a look back at this past week in which Brian Flores filed this class action lawsuit in terms of, hey, look, man, this stuff in terms of the discrimination with black head coaches, qualified black head coaches who are trying to get a job, this stuff in terms of sham interviews and discrimination and ignorance and intolerance and racism has been going on 
for decades. And I'm going to be the guy that's going to shine the light on what is happening and be the guy that's going to be making moves to get this done, real moves to make this done, or at least to get this movement started. If it means the end of my head coaching career in the NFL, even though I'm only 40, 41 years old, so be it. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than my ambitions to be a head coach in the NFL. This is something for the history books. If I can get this to where I wanted to get to in 10, 15, 20 years from now, they're not going to be speaking about Brian Flores, the coach. They're going to be speaking about Brian Flores, the trailblazer. Brian Flores, the the guy who's going to live forever in the annals of history in terms of righting the wrong for the NFL. So his kids and his great-great-grandkids and his generations of Flores will know what his daddy, what his great-great-great-great-great-great-daddy did to help the NFL get to where it is. And with the NFL being as big as it is in the fabric of America, I mean, this could lead to not just black men getting a fair shake in terms of being hired for head coaching positions in the National Football League. This could lead to black men being hired more prominently and more often in other parts of society, in other parts outside of just the National Football League. I mean, we're speaking about CEOs of companies. We're speaking about other things, which is much bigger than just someone getting an offensive coordinating position or a defensive coordinating position or a quarterback coach in the NFL. What Flores, I think, is trying to do is go ahead and do that by shining the light and basically sabotaging his own career as far as an NFL coach is concerned. The only thing I have to say about this for Flores in terms of him accusing Stephen Ross of tanking football games by telling him that, you know what, for every football game you lose when he was first hired, that you'll get $100,000. And now that Bill Belichick, his interest or his uh, text messages to what he thought was Brian Dave, uh, Dable, but instead sent it to him speaking about, you know what, congratulations on getting the New York Giants football gig before Flores had an opportunity to uh, interview for it himself. All of these things which uh, Coach Flores, former Coach Flores, Mr. Flores, Brian Flores, is doing right now is all in the event that, you know what, there needs to be some changes. There needs to be some things going on in the league in terms of what what we need to do in terms of where we need to go so this class action that i'm filing right now the main the main purpose of all of this is to have significant change which is uh increase the influence of black individuals in hiring increase objectivity in hiring or terminating gms head coaches and coordinators of color increase the number of black coordinators incentivizing hiring retention of black gms head coaches and coordinators transparency of pay for general managers, head coaches, and coordinators, especially those of color. So this is what all of the stuff, this is what uh, Coach Flores or Brian Flores wants to uh, wants to lead to. And I I applaud him. I really do. And I, and I hope this works. But I'm a realist. Uh, glass half empty guy, glass half full guy, it all depends. It all depends on what you're pouring me in terms of if the glass is going to be half half empty or half full. If it's going to be something in which really some big changes that could be happening in society, I'm all for the glass half full. If I feel that this is going to be leading to a big nothing and at the end of drinking it, I'm still going to be thirsty, but there's not going to be anything left for me to pour, for me to quench uh, my thirst. I feel that I, I feel that uh, I go by the glass glass empty empty type of situation. I think when everything is all said and done, I think Brian Flores is going to die on a hill 
which not too many people are going to remember. Or they're not going to remember in terms of the same impact or influence that some of the trailblazing global iconic heroes that I just mentioned. It's not going to have the same impact in terms of trying to uh, advance this movement in terms of uh, what his what his agenda is, what his hopes and thoughts are in terms of bringing this to light. Will it help a little bit? I don't think so. Or should I say, would it help to, to the point where throwing his football career away as a head coach, possibly throwing his head coaching career away as a football coach, is, was it worth it for the change that could be made or the change that is going to be made because of this? Not really. And it all, it all depends on what your definition is. If this is going to be the result of teams or the league putting in stricter laws or rules about teams that are tanking for players or draft picks and such, okay, I don't know what that does in terms of minority hiring, but if this also, we're speaking about what Flores is doing, if this makes an impact of, say, the NFL hiring two or three more head coaches than it would normally do, Maybe the advancement of maybe a few more coordinators, maybe one or two more GMs. And look, everything needs a starting point, right? And there's a timeline and there's a time frame for all of the stuff to get done. So who knows? I mean, this, the little trickle can turn into a uh, can turn into a, uh, a gusher in 30, 40, 50 years from now to where my generation isn't going to be able to see the fruits of Brian Flores' labor. Maybe Brian Flores, if he lives another four or five decades, maybe he won't see the true fruits of his labor. It all depends. And for some people, the of what Brian Flores is doing, if it makes an impact to where the NFL expands its coaching ranks as far as African Americans, black folks are concerned, to an extra two or three head coaches a year or two or three head coaches more. So instead of having the status quo normally of about four or five head coaches that, you know, possibly because of what Brian Flores has done that all of a sudden now, instead of four or five head coaches on a yearly basis, there's going to be eight to nine. There's going to be eight to nine in the 32 league, 32 team league, like the NFL. If there's going to be, Eight to nine average black head coaches because of what Brian Flores did. Uh, but because of that, Brian Flores sacrificed his opportunity to be one of those eight or nine black head coaches that are going to be consistently hired. Like, you know, there's going to be a time frame between 2023 and 2041 where the lowest that the uh, black coaches were head coaches was six. And at the very you know, there's, there was a three-year period in the time between, I don't know, let's just throw out some years, 2026 to 2029, that there was double figures. Let's say there was 10 to 13 African-American black head coaches. And this all happened, and this all started with the foundation of this new movement was because of what Brian Flores did to sabotage his career. And if he doesn't get another chance, would it be worth it? I'm quite sure for a large majority of folks who are white, maybe some who aren't, would sit there and be like, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, in terms of if we could have one-fourth of the league, a little bit more than one-fourth of the league be black in terms of head coaching is concerned, yeah, I think that would be really, really good. The definition of that between black folks and white folks might be a little bit different. Black folks might be like, yeah, man, progress has been made. Nice job, way to go, but there's still progress to be done. And there might be some white folks who sit up there and talk about, well, damn, man, what y'all want? What, 32 black folks up there coaching NFL football teams? 
hell, we gave you nine, we gave you 10, we gave you 13, 58% of the league is black. You know, you've got the uh, increase in, of, of, of hires and minorities in terms of quarterback coaches and offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators, and now you've got eight or nine black GMs. I mean, damn, what, when are y'all ever going to be satisfied? A black folks are going to say, we're never going to be satisfied until we get true equality. Because guess what? Even in a 32-team league where there's nine black head coaches, there's still four or five or six more black head coaches who are consistently denied the opportunity to be an NFL head coach and should be getting a head coach. And we have the rest in, in terms of the nine black head coaches that are, uh, you know, head coaches in the NFL. Let me tell you something. There's about, oh, I don't know, out of those 23 white head coaches, there's about 16 of y'all that shouldn't be having jobs because y'all stink. And maybe out of those 16 that stink, that shouldn't have a job, maybe those of those 16 positions, maybe another four or five candidates that are much better than you of color should be having those jobs. So yeah, we're fine, we're happy, we're giddy that there's nine black head coaches for the 2020 season, 2027 NFL season, but there could be more. And there could be black folks, white folks, Asian folks, gay folks, uh, short folks, Catholic folks, Jewish folks out there who sit and say, damn, man, how much, when is enough is enough? Good Lord have mercy. Aren't we still fighting with that? You know, don't we have a world right now where despite discrimination, despite the uh, the obstacles that uh, black folks and poor folks and Hispanic folks and white folks and women still have to overcome, and then there's still folks out there who sit there and say, damn, y'all are still up there whining and complaining about y'all can't get a job or you don't get paid the same amount of money as we or the incarceration rate for your community is higher than my community and y'all are still screaming and hollering and moaning and whining and crying about that? Damn, man, when are y'all ever going to be satisfied? Interesting. Hmm. Interesting how life outside of the sporting realm can coexist and have the similarities of the situations that are going on within a sports league king of kings the nfl but yeah man it's the same thing in terms of what society is concerned what's your definition of enough is enough what's your definition of progress what's your definition of true progress has been made it varies it varies upon so many things that you know i, I don't know i don't know what the answer is going to be I, I don't know like i mentioned before man when these coaches were hired I, I can't tell you in terms of some of these coaches that were hired who were white i can't tell you whether they're qualified to be head coaches or not I'm, I'm, these assistant coaches i don't know what brian dable who was chosen by the um new york giants to be their head coach i don't know if he's going to be a good coach or not i don't know if he's going to be a good head coach he was a great offensive coordinator that doesn't mean anything if he's going to be a great head coach or not. I mean, he had Josh Allen. He de developed Josh Allen. whoop de damn do Welcome to the world of Daniel Jones. You know, we don't know what kind of head coach is, is, is Brian Dable going to be. We don't know if he's going to succeed. We don't know if he's going to fail. That's what all the other hires, uh, this cycle of white head coaches. So I can't point to one example of a coach that was hired and say, well, he's going to flop. He's going to be terrible. Every single year, coaches are hired. There's great hires. And they work out, as I mentioned before. See Matt LaFleur with the Green Bay Packers. And there's coaches who you would swear that they're going to be great, but they end up being flops. See uh, Matt Nagy over in Chicago and everywhere else in between. So I don't know. I, I don't know. Not, not every black coach is going to be a home run. Not every black coach is going to uh, pan out. You know, so, so for me to sit there and say, I cannot believe DeMarco Ryan 
didn't get an opportunity to uh, get a head coaching job. I don't know what kind of head coach DeMarco Ryan is going to be. I mean, right now, we don't know what kind of coach Robert Slayla is going to be for the New York Jets. You, you take over that uh, situation, you take over that franchise, just like we don't know what kind of coach Dan Campbell is going to be for the Detroit Lions. We don't know. I mean, that's a dysfunctional organization with the uh, Fords running that uh, running that show. What the last time that the uh, Lions had any success? Oh, that's right, Jim Caldwell. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So, you know, with that in his moniker, with that on this resume, what coach, what uh, job has Jim Caldwell been able to get? And there lies the problem. One of the things that we're talking about, one of the things that I'm talking about, one of the things that black coaches have been speaking about, and one of the things that Brian Flores wants to see change. Hence, he's up bringing this, this suit against the NFL. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. One of the things that was interesting in all of this was that um, Coach Flores alleged that uh, Miami Dolphins owner Stephen Ross attempted to incentivize him to tank on purpose shortly after he was hired in 2019. He allegedly, Ross allegedly offered Flores $100,000 for every loss that season. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And Flores said that as the team won games later on that season after starting 0-7, that Dolphins general manager Chris Greer told him that Ross was uh, pretty upset that uh, the team was having so much uh, success on the field and was compromising the team's draft position. Now, I don't know. In terms of me screaming and shouting, yes, you know, as an owner, I mean, you want you want to put the best product on the field because the Folks who are going to your games are paying to see that product. So you want to do your best. And it's not on to it's not it's not on the coaches or the players or anyone associated with the game itself in terms of the wins and losses to go out there and try to uh, take. I, I don't even know in terms of how secretly Brian Flores could go on, go ahead and uh, and uh, take the marching orders of Dolphins owner Stephen Ross and go out there and tank. I mean, if, unless it would be so brazen that, you know, it'd be pretty obvious to everybody that, damn, man, this guy's tanking. With the Philadelphia 76ers, we saw that it was tanking. I mean, the the, the the players that they put out on the court and the fact that their mantra was, hey, look, we're just looking to uh, get better and we're going to clear some cap space and we're going to do all these other things and we're going to build through the draft and we have some pieces right now, namely Joel Embiid that's not playing, so we're going to go through this wretch. We're going to go through this disappointment. We're going to go through this losing with the hope and prayers and the best opportunity to come out of this with uh, the opportunity to uh, win multiple championships and have this long, long, uh, uh, long success that's going to be coming out. So the Philadelphia 76ers were pretty much, you know, telling the fans that, hey, you know what, this is what we're doing. Football with the Miami Dolphins, no one was sitting there talking about, hey, the Miami Dolphins are tanking. Now there could be discussion because at the time, Tua Tungabailoa, who was a junior at Alabama, was supposed to be the generational great quarterback that would turn any franchise around. Now, of course, there's discussion amongst the fans and everybody that, hey, you know what, if we are tanking and if we do get Tua with the number one draft pick, then, you know, all's well that ends well if he can go ahead and live up to the expectations and talent and potential that we think that he can bring to this uh, squad as a quarterback. But uh, I'm just wondering... When Ross said, hey, here's 100000 or, you know, we'll give you $100,000 every time you lose. Stephen Ross is a billionaire. I don't 
know how many billions of that is liquid, but Stephen Ross has got some money. So if I'm Brian Flores, and look, Brian Flores is a man of integrity, I understand, but if you're speaking about me, a man who has very little integrity, I would say, um, well, you know, first of all, what, what, when you're speaking about you're going to pay me $100,000, are we speaking about, you know, every Sunday night or every Monday night after the game is over, after every Thursday night when we play, if we play on Thursday nights, Monday nights, whatever, after we lose, am I going to be able just to walk into your suite or go up to you and say, well, that's a loss, pay me my hundred grand. Is it going to be part of my paycheck? Is it going to be in cash? I mean, what, what is the what is the situation here? Talk to me a little bit about this $100,000 incentive, this bonus. Is this going to be, you know, is this going to be taxable? Am I going to get it at the end of the season? For instance, if we go, I, I, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the season, the Dolphins were 5-11. and 11. Does that mean that um, Brian Flores get $110,000? Or when they lost their seven games in a row after each one of those games, you know, Stephen Ross was like, uh, go to the ATM and could you please get out $100,000, please? I'll make it all in uh, small bills and, uh, you know, go ahead and get it chop chop because um got to do some things with Brian Flores. I mean, I don't know what that situation entailed. I don't know all that that broke down, but maybe it was a situation where, you know, Brian Flores came in, new coach, 38 years old at the time, head coach of the Dolphins, gave that, uh, gave the marching orders to go ahead and lose as many games as possible. So, First four games of the season that year, they played Baltimore, New England, Dallas, and the Chargers. They lost by a combined score of 163-26. to If someone would have told me, if someone would have told you that Brian Flores was in on this in terms of getting incentivized for every loss, it'd be kind of hard to uh, take a look at the evidence of 163-26 to and say, no, 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 he's really trying to win football games losing their first uh, seven games of the season. So I'm thinking, and look, this is all just me just having a little fun. I'm not besmirching the character of Brian Flores. I'm just saying that maybe after the first four weeks, you know, he's like, you know, um, Mr. Ross, you haven't paid me that $110,000 for the loss to Baltimore, New England, Dallas, and the Chargers. I mean, I pretty much gave you enough time to kind of, realized that we weren't going to win the football game, so it gave you plenty of time to make that $100,000 transaction either to my direct deposit in my bank account or, you know, something because, you know, you know, my, 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 my babies need some need some shoes on their feet and some clothes on their body and, you know, that private school that we're going to, it ain't for free. And, you know, my wifey needs, a, like, a, you know, a brand-new coat and a brand-new sailboat and something like that, and, you know, Grandmas need some stuff also, so you know you need to kind of go ahead and uh, kind of fulfill your obligation. So maybe it was a situation where Stephen Ross was like, "Ah, yeah, you know what? Get back to me later." Maybe it was the same situation. Maybe he was treating Brian Flores in terms of this incentive plan, in terms of when he was going to be paid and the honesty of it. Maybe he was treating him like the NFL owners treat black head coaches when they go for head coaching gigs. You know, maybe this was just some bullshit where it was just a scam. Maybe it was just something where this was never really going to happen. So maybe after seven games, when Flores kind of looked around and said, man, this motherfucker ain't going to be giving me no damn $100,000 for me to be losing football games. Let me go out here and start doing my thing. The Miami Dolphins finished 5-4 and four in their final nine games and um, got, a, got into a position. I think they were number five that year in the NFL draft. So everything was like, you know, we're taking for Tua. We're getting ready for Tua. We want to do this for Tua. Uh, Tua. 
And look, you know, that sophomore season, before going into his junior year, uh, Tua passed for 4,000 yards, almost 4,000 yards, 43 touchdowns, six interceptions, completing 69% of his passes. So going into that season in Alabama, everybody was just jumping around and doing the boogaloo and the funky chicken too about, my goodness gracious, that Tua Tunga-Vailoa was going to be that guy who was going to be the savior for our franchise. So again, if you're in the Miami Dolphins fan base, and you really want to see them win, and you even got lieu of what Stephen Ross was doing in terms of let's see how many games that we can lose to try to get Tua Tunga Vailoa. It might not have been kosher. You might not have liked it, but you can say, well, the ends will justify the means if we go ahead and get Tua and Tua turns into the quarterback that we all hope and pray for. So I could take a season of embarrassment. Hell, I've been having, being a Miami Dolphins fan, I mean, we've been having seasons of embarrassment now on a regular on a very consistent basis. So what's one more year going to do if it means getting the best quarterback that we could possibly have since Dan Marino? So sure, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. So for a lot of the fan base in Miami, possibly that was their uh, attitude toward all of that. But as I mentioned before, Tua came in his junior year at Alabama. He was supposed to be the guy that was going to win the Heisman Trophy. This was going to be the guy who was going to uh, set all the records. This was going to be the guy that was going to get Alabama back to winning the national championship. This was going to be the guy who was going to do all of those things. He was projected to be the first overall pick in the 2020 NFL draft and through nine games at Alabama. Tunga Vailoa was throwing for almost 3,000 yards, threw 33 touchdowns, only three interceptions, completing 70% of his 252 passes, but he suffered a season-ending injury against Mississippi State. And what all happened after that was they were speaking about, well, you know, this guy was always, I mean, he had a wrist injury, he had an ankle injury, and now he suffered this injury against Mississippi State. To be a franchise quarterback in the NFL, you know, Tua isn't 6'4", 260, 250, something like that. He is of a small build. Is he going to be able to, is he going to be able to hold up in the NFL? So that started to put a little bit of red flag on the no doubt about it that Tua Tunga Bailoa is going to be that franchise number one player that every team is going to be tanking for to get. So that was the first issue. But the bigger issue after that was the emergence of Joe Burrow. From we didn't know about him, we don't care about him, he's inconsequential at the end of his junior year to at the end of his senior year. I mean, he made leaps and bounds like uh, we've never seen before in terms of going from, as I mentioned before, a decent starting quarterback for LSU on a decent LSU team to all of a sudden winning the Heisman Trophy, setting all types of passing records, and... Um, LSU winning the national championship. So then Joe Burrow, who looks more in stature and in frame like a quarterback in the NFL, he was taken by the Cincinnati Bengals rather than Tua Tango-Vailoa. And the crazy thing is, with all of this speculation and talk allegedly about tanking games to get to Tua, well, Miami at number five, because of some of those issues and some of the circumstances of life that happened with Joe Burrow and Tua and injuries and all those type of things, that um, Miami was still able to get him with the number five pick. So it was just a situation of, okay, everything worked out well that ended well. But uh, it was interesting because when <laughs> when Stephen Ross fired uh, Flores, one of the things he was talking about was we need somebody who's going to uh, you know basically play ball with us in terms of when I ask him to do something, he needs to be a, uh, a he needs to be a more uh, obedient employee. 
So when I ask him to do something, he goes and he tells me to go fuck myself. Then, you know, we have a problem right there. Now, I'm not saying that Brian Flores told Stephen Roth to do those type of things. But if you look and if you're believing what Flores is alleging in terms of not doing what Stephen Roth said to lose football games on purpose by not participating in uh, tampering with the NFL because Ross wanted Flores to go on his boat and it just so happened that there was going to be a quarterback of importance that was going to be in the same area. Maybe that we can invite him on the boat and to lunch and Flores was like, bullshit, I'm out of here. And all of these things, you know, in terms of that, maybe when Ross was speaking about, hey, we need guys who can, you know, work as a team and work as a group and, you know, follow each other and this, that and the other. Maybe that's what Stephen Ross was talking about. Because at the beginning of the press conference, we all were speaking about, well, maybe, you know, it's because the amount of offensive coordinators he went through and all of this kind of stuff. Maybe that was the reason why he let, uh, maybe that's what the reason Stephen Ross was uh, talking about when he was speaking about, we need somebody who's going to be able to play ball and get along with others. Now, maybe, now the thought process has switched to, well, maybe he was speaking about, hey, look, when I tell you to tank games, you tank games. When I tell you to go ahead and work on this quarterback to see if he could be the quarterback of our team, even though it could be tampering with the NFL, I don't give a damn. You do what I tell you to do. Well, if you're not going to do that, then guess what? You are gone. You are out of here. Maybe that was the situation. I don't know. I don't know. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Um, speaking about the whole Bill Belichick type of deal here, um, Flores alleged that the Giants interviewed him last month for their Head coaching vacancy for no other reason than compliance with the NFL Rooney, Rooney's rule. Now, what is the Rooney's rule? I know that you're asking me that question. Well, let me tell you. Requirements, it requires teams to interview minority candidates for open positions. The league has amended the rule in recent years. And now says teams must hold an in-person interview with at least one external minority candidate for any general manager or head coaching open, uh, opening. So, like, for instance, if a coach gets fired midway through the season and the black defensive coordinator or whoever becomes the interim coach for the rest of the season, whether it be 13 games or whether it be three quarters, that doesn't count in terms of, see, being a black head coach, what are you talking about? And also, you can't, in terms of looking for head coaches, you just can't go ahead and uh, interview the one of the, the, defense, the, the black defensive line coach and be like, okay, we... Uh, we got the Rooney rule out of the way. Now let's go ahead and hire the white guy. So there have been amendments over the years to strengthen the rule to uh, give black head coaches and minority head coaching candidates a better opportunity. Other uses for the rule outside of the NFL is speaking about the Rooney rule. Former president, still my president, Barack Obama, issued a call to action to technology companies in 2015, encouraging them to hire more women in minorities by implementing the Rooney Rule and many companies in recent years have said that they have uh, adapted the rule to increase diversity and inclusion in the workplace. So again, interesting, we see the parallels of what's happening in football, the fabric of this country and what's happening and how it influences um, things outside of the realm of football and into the everyday life of everyday people wendell's world of sports i'm your host wendell wallace so glad that you could be with us so according to the lawsuit flores alleged that he spoke with the giants via zoom on january 18th prior to the team hiring its gm on january 23rd the next day flores 
and the Giants set his interview date for January 27th. Okay, so spoke with the Giants via Zoom January 18th prior to the meeting, prior to the Giants hiring his GM on January 23rd. That makes a lot of sense because you try to hire the GM before you hire the coach. So speaking, they said, let's set up something for January 27th. Okay, cool. Then Giants co-director of player personnel, Tim McDonald, texted Flores saying that he hoped that he would come in and win the fucking job. All right. That sounds sincere, doesn't it? That sounds pretty like, okay, ain't no shenanigans here. Ain't no shenanigans in here. All right, let me go ahead and get it done. But according to the lawsuit, hours later, Flores received a series of text messages from Bill Belichick, under whom Flores worked for 10 years in New England, right? And in those texts, Belichick said Flores... Uh, in those texts, Belichick told Flores he had heard from Buffalo and the New York Giants that you're their guy. And when Flores asked Belichick, what are you talking about in terms of I'm their guy? We haven't even had an interview yet. Belichick was like, oops, I'm sorry. I meant uh, I was trying to send this to Brian Dable. My bad. I'm sorry. In fact, he said in the reply, Belichick said, sorry, I fucked this up. I double checked and misread the text. I think they are naming Brian Dable. I'm sorry about that. That's what allegedly uh, Belichick texted. So, you know, basically it's like, well, wait a minute there. If on the 23rd the or, you know, before the 27th, the Giants had already come to the conclusion that Brian Dable was going to be their coach, what the hell am I going for the meeting on January 27th? If you've already gone ahead and, you know, named Brian Dable or had Brian Dable as your head coach. So that is... A situation where that's a violation of the Rooney rule and Flores then kind of surmised that he was only be going to the um, meeting with the Giants for their quote-unquote head coaching position just to satisfy the Rooney rule so again it was a sham it was a joke it was a clown show in terms of that and New York hired a Dable uh, a day later so you know again this is not the first time that uh, something like this has happened to Flores he alleged that a similar scenario occurred when he interviewed with the Broncos for their head coaching position in 2019, the job that went to Vic Fangio. Flores said that then Denver general manager John Elway, along with some others, attended the interview an hour late and hung over. Allegedly, they had been uh, drinking heavily the night before. Okay. All right. All right. That's all right. So in the statement, uh, you know, through all of this, again, Flores is saying that he hopes others will join his lawsuit to share the stories of uh, systematic racism in the NFL. And of course, in his own statement, the league said that it's said diversity is core to everything we do. <laughs> I mean, I mean, are you going to, are you trying to Donald Trump insult me with some bullshit like that? Diversity is the core to everything that we do. And that is that Flores' claims are without merit. The NFL diversity is the core is at the core of everything we do. Is at the core of every... Uh, what core are we talking about? The last time I checked, when the lawsuit was filed, the Pittsburgh Steelers were the only team that employed a black head coach in Mike Tomlin. Diversity at its core. We're still five spots, or four spots now, because Doug Peterson got uh, hired by the Jacksonville Jaguars. So there's still four more positions open. Eric Bieniemy is going to be interviewing for the New Orleans Saints jobs who knows the validity of that and you know who knows what the chances are of um the enemy getting that job but the NFL come on don't 
Look, man, I know that you're a multi-billion dollar business. I know that you're the most popular thing going. I know that nothing's going to change because the NFL is too powerful. It's too strong. I understand the country that we live in. And I understand that, you know what, unless advertisers want to, or NFL partners want to say bye-bye and sever relationships with a multi-billion dollar revenue grossing league, which is just so addicted to the game of football, and unless the fan support is going to fall off the cliff, and when was the last time fan support has fallen off the cliff for any black issues concerning anything, anywhere, anytime, not just in the National Football League, but in society in general, when was the last time that white folks have all, uh, the high majority of white folks has been like, oh, well, we've got to, you know, take a stand about this and really, really try to cause some change. Like all of a sudden now there's going to be such backlash to black folks not being hired as black head coaches that all of a sudden now white folks and the white partners of uh, advertising and all of that kind of stuff is going to be so outraged and so disgusted and so disappointed in the NFL that, oh my goodness, we're not going to be buying this merchandise. We're not going to be, you know, signing up for season tickets. We're not going to be watching the games. We're not going to be uh, tuning in or anything like that. And the advertisers are going to be like, we're so disgusted by what Stephen Ross is alleging or what uh, Stephen Ross uh, did in terms of tanking for games. And we're not going to be putting up with that nonsense anymore. We are going to end this relationship with the NFL. You really think that that shit is going to happen? Of course it's not going to happen. So, of course, the NFL can put out an ignorant jackass, don't insult my intelligence statement like diversity is at its core. Diversity is not at your core when you only have three minorities and 32 teams being head coaches of your franchises. <laughs> it's just not happening. When you have, what, um, what's the percentage here of, uh, what's the percentage here when we're speaking about, you know, oh, my goodness, we need this, um, you know, the, we're, uh, diversity is at its core. When you're speaking of the low number of offensive coordinators, when you're speaking about of only five general managers of color in the National Football League as its GM, when you're speaking about four black offensive coordinators, which is 12%, when you're speaking of 11 black defensive coordinators, which is 34%, when you're speaking about the percentage of black or African-American head coaches remaining at 94 through 2020 and 2021 of the NFL seasons, when you're speaking about a situation where it's never been anywhere close to what it should be in terms of the percentage of black head coaches in the league, you have got to be flipping kidding me. When you need a rule called the Rooney rule to make sure that black folks even get an interview and most of them are sham, how in the world can the NFL sit there and talk about diversity is at its core? (laughs) Again, don't insult me. Don't insult my intelligence, man. I didn't vote for the fucking jackass that was the president and name only. Only. I'm not that gullible. I'm not that stupid. I'm not that, you know, just don't, don't insult my intelligence. Just come out and say, hey, you know what? We just kind of feel more comfortable hiring white guys. Do something about it. <laughs> you know, the NFL knows that I ain't going nowhere. The NFL knows that what I'm going to do is shout and scream and do these podcasts and shout and scream and yell racism and this is horrible and this is disgusting and this is embarrassing. The NFL knows I'm going to do all those type of things. And the NFL knows that people much more prominent with much bigger platforms than me are going to get out there and do the same thing. They're going to, you know, this is terrible and this is horrible and how can this happen and all these type of things and the NFL needs to be ashamed of itself and every single year we go through the same thing and when is the NFL going to change and Roger Goodell is going to take the bullets for the owner to get up there and the owners and 
get up there and he's going to say, you know, yeah, something needs to change and we're working hard on it every day and we're looking to have change and, you know, we're a diversified group and we love diversity and we need diversity and the NFL is all about diversity and we're all about inclusion and we hate systemic racism and we've made strides over the years to make sure that we've erased some of the ills of racism and just, uh, you know, all of these type of things and nothing's going to change because the NFL owners know and the NFL advertisers and their partners know that, guess what? There's going to be about 60, 70, 80 million people next Sunday watching the Super Bowl. They know that when it comes to the NFL draft, that that's going to dwarf anything anybody else is putting on television. They know, I don't even know where the, um, I don't even know where the NFL draft is this, this year, but whatever city it's in, they know that it's going to be packed. They know that they're going to get thousands upon thousands of people, not just to hear the first five picks and then go home, but each day that the NFL drafted there, they know that they're going to get a strong crowd rooting on their team. They know that once the training camp opens in August, that, man, the other things as far as sports is concerned is going to come to a grinding halt. No one's going to give a flipping shit about baseball once, I should say nobody, there's not going to be too many people giving a shit about baseball when the NFL training camps open. And when September happens and football starts up again, they know that the they know that the ratings to watch these games are going to be through the roof. So what is there to change? What is there to be concerned about? I mean, what is there to even acknowledge? We're going to keep doing what we're doing and we're just going to keep making more money and more money and more money until something changes in terms of them losing money and then losing money, then Nothing's going to change. They can go ahead and they can uh, screw Colin Kaepernick over. They can continue to screw minorities over as far as head coaching positions. They can keep doing what they're doing. They can keep sexually harassing women. They can go ahead and keep hiring felons for their football team. It doesn't matter. As long as you can still bet on these football games, as long as there's still fantasy football, as long as the games are still going to be televised, and as long as the game has a Patrick Mahomes or a Josh Allen or a Derrick Henry or... Uh, a team like the uh, like like the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Green Bay Packers or you know if you're speaking regionally the Kansas City football team and the Seattle Seahawks and if you the Washington football team and as long as you have those things going with the National Football League, not hiring black head coaches is not going to uh, put a halt to the momentum and to the strength of the NFL. It doesn't matter. It ain't gonna matter. So. Like I mentioned before, Brian Flores, man, you know, I I um I applaud what you're doing. But I'm a realist. I think that you're a realist. I think as long as people don't have their head up their ass or in the sand, uh, we know what's gonna be happening here. We know once the Super Bowl gets here, and I even Super Bowl week starting tomorrow, I'm recording this on a Sunday night. But as soon as the um, festivities for the Super Bowl happens and we can start getting revved up for the Bengals versus the Los Angeles Rams, this lawsuit by Brian Flores is going to dissipate into the world of nothingness, old news. We forgot about it. We're moving on. The NFL, as oppressive and racist and wrongheaded and privileged as they are, whatever definition you want to use, for some of the warts and some of the deficiencies of the NFL, it doesn't matter. Nothing is going to slow down the NFL. Even the embarrassing uh, practice of hiring qualified black head coaches.
Ready for war, Joe? How you wanna blow these spot? I know these dirty cops that'll get us in the free murder some wop. Hop in your hummer, the punishes ready. Meet me and feed with noodles. We do this do while he's slurping spaghetti. Everybody kiss the fucking floor, don't be crack. Fuck them all if they move, noodles shoot that fucking whore. Dead in the middle of little, literally little. Did we know that we riddle to middle? Man, who didn't do diddly? It'll be a cold game, how the day I take it now. Make no mistake, for real, I wouldn't hesitate to kill. I'm still a fat one that you love to hate. Catch you at your mother's waist. Smack you, then I whack you with my subtrayate. I rub your face off the earth and curse your family. Children like Amity Filler, show the nerves in your cavity filling. Insanity's building a pavilion in my civilian. It can't be the energy that humanity's filling. I'm filling without remorse. Who's willing to out your boss forever and take all the cheddar like child support? I support running anything he does, anything he loves. Another brother from another mother said for the above. A dark nigga just like me, one of the best might, might be. Even better, even niggas kneeling on their right knee. Spike Lee couldn't paint a better picture. You small change, I'm blowing out your brains. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hope everybody is doing fantastic. You know, I almost forgot I'm recording this on the Sunday evening. You know, I completely forgot that the Pro Bowl was on. I have no, I completely forgot, man. I have no idea. It's just a glorious Sunday. This is the first Sunday in how many months that we hadn't had a game on, uh, we haven't had an NFL game. This is great, man. I had a great opportunity. I took a nice nap, watched a couple of A&E programs on the app. I went ahead, watched uh Caught up on the uh, A&E special about uh, Playboy, about the uh, Hugh Humphreys, talking about him being the uh, being the pimps of pimps. So I had a great day, man. I had a wonderful, relaxing day, getting ready to wake up at 4.45 in a flipping morning to drive out to Mesquite, Nevada to uh, start educating the youth, something that I absolutely, positively love doing. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell, I don't like waking up at 4.45, and I don't like driving in the pitchiness of dark up to uh, Mesquite, the hour and 15 minutes that it takes. But uh, once I get there, I'm rip-roaring, ready to go, depending upon what class I'm going to. Wendell's World and Sports, they're all great. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, Tom Brady's retiring, huh? Now, this is official, all right? There's no more. I haven't uh, really given my word or I'm still debating and me and Giselle and the kids have to go ahead and talk this over. He's, he's officially retired, right? Okay, retired on Tuesday on his Instagram account, of course. Past season, 22nd in his last season, led the league in passing yardage, completions, touchdowns for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who lost in the divisional round of the NFC playoff to the Super Bowl contending Los Angeles Rams or the Super Bowl participant. Los Angeles Rams, as you know, that TB won the Super Bowl with the Buccaneers last season after winning six championships previously with the New England Patriots, part of the greatest dynasty in pro sports, maybe the greatest dynasty since the Bill Russell led 11 championships in 13 seasons through the 50s and late 60s, Boston Celtics. So what he posted, speaking of Brady, what he posted on his Instagram account, he said, I have always believed. The sport of football is an all-in proposition. If a 100% competitive commitment isn't there, you won't succeed. This success is what I love so much about the game. This is difficult for me to write, but here it goes. I am not going to make that competitive commitment anymore. I have loved the NFL. I have loved my NFL career, and now it is time to focus on my... It is now time for... Excuse me. I love my NFL career, and now it is time to focus my time and energy on other things that require my attention. 
I have loved my NFL career, and now it is time to focus my time. Okay, Tom, hold on a second. I think a better worded phrase would be, I have loved my NFL career, and now it's time to focus my energy on other things that require my attention. You don't need the extra time there. It's convoluted, and it makes people kind of, you know, flip, skip, and fall all over the words that they're that they're saying. Just, just, just a little FYI. Of course, with his 15 gazillion dollars, he says, Wendell, how about this in English? Kiss my fucking ass. So there you go. So Brady's official official retirement came after ESPN reported that he would retire on January 29th. And then hours later after that, it was reported uh, that uh, his father, Tom Brady Sr., was like, no, 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 no. He's not going anywhere. And then Don Yee, his agent, was like, no, 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 no. He hasn't made his decision yet. What's going on? Brady wanted to be him was going to make the decision that he was going to retire. So it's interesting, um, Adam Schefter and a couple of other guys who scooped Tom Brady on the story about his own retirement, I wonder who gave it up. Because if it's Tom Brady's father who's sitting there talking about, no, 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 I refute that report. And Don Yee was up there talking about, no, 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 I refute that report. Who in Brady's camp was the one that let the uh, cat out of the bag in terms of him retiring? And, uh, you know, I don't know. When you speak, I don't know. I don't know. When you really speak about all-time greats in terms of retirements, I, I, I don't know if you need all the pomp and circumstance of, you know, having this big, huge, whatever, whatever. I mean, Brady will have his opportunity at Gillette Stadium at a halftime or maybe even after the game to go ahead and have people bow down to him, the home crowd, his home crowd, his hometown, his place, his franchise, his region, his area where – he became the legend where he became the GOAT, the New England Patriots and Gillette Stadium. I'm quite sure that they'll have a big extravaganza very soon next season or very, very soon. So you know, all of this, you know, all of this, you know, wow, Tom Brady's retiring and trying to go out as far as giving a bye-bye to the sport and giving a tribute video similar to uh, Manny Pacquiao and all that kind of stuff. Tom Brady will have multiple opportunities in the grandest of stages to uh, go ahead and have all the pomp and circumstances and the fireworks and the ooh-lahs and the ooh-wah-wahs coming up. So, I mean, now I was about to say something which sounds stupid. So, you know, me being stupid, let me go ahead and say it anyway. Tom Brady has been so great that they should waive the five-year, you know, you have to be out of the game five years before you become eligible for the Hall of Fame. Tom Brady is so great and so awesome that we should just put him in starting next year. Nah, this, nah, he ain't dead. So let him kind of wait it out. Let him wait for the five years. But that just crossed my mind for a quick second. So I was thinking about all the times that Tom Brady can go ahead and talk about how wonderful his career has been. And he would like to thank this person and like to thank that person. And the fans are just the greatest. And I love the sport so much. And they can have this video tribute and all this type of stuff and have his dad and have his brothers and have his sisters and have his wife and have his kids and have his ex-teammates and have his coaches all talk about how how great Tom Brady is as a player and a person and all those type of things. There'll be a multitude of opportunities in which I'm quite sure a lot of them Tom Brady are going to take for uh, folks to do the victory lap for him in terms of talking about how great he was as a Football player, as a teammate, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a son, and all that kind of stuff. So the fact that Brady didn't get to initially go out the way he wanted it to go out, that's okay. That's fine. He'll he'll go ahead and live. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad 
that you could be with us. When I'm thinking about Tom Brady's career, and you know, as I mentioned before, where are we going to go with this? How are we going to put into this? What defines it? What words can say? From an outside guy looking in, from a guy who uh, started following Tom Brady's career. You know, Tom Brady started his career when I was just turning 30. Wow, so how about that? He spent a couple of decades with me, playing career being 22 years. Hello. So um, when you speak about Tom Brady in his career, man, and you think about you know, talking about his career and trying to put it in some type of words. For me, when I take a look at the totality of Tom Brady, teammate, player, career, you put it all into one. I take pieces of his his career and I kind of compare it and define it with the careers of, um, and we're speaking about all spectrum of sports here. Speaking about the careers of Jim Brown and Bill Russell and, Otto Graham, Joe Montana, Barry Sanders, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, LeBron James, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps, Gordie Howe. When you speak about George Foreman, another name that popped into my head when I was thinking about the career, the longevity, the sustained success of a career, the name George Foreman popped into my head. And then I thought about what uh, he meant to the sport. And the dynasty and the records and everything that uh, he accomplished with uh, Bill Belichick as his coach. And that took me to uh, the thinking of a Derek Jeter and Joe Torre, a Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan, a Red Auerbach and Bill Russell, uh, Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan, a Paul Brown and an Otto Graham, a Chuck Knoll and a Terry Bradshaw. You know, those are some of the things I think about. When you, when you think about you know Brady retiring still near the top of his game or at least um, still being one of the best players in the NFL, reminiscent of what Jim Brown did in 1965 when he retired, reminiscent of what Barry Sanders did when he retired from the NFL. When I think about Bill Russell, if I think about the greatest winner in sports, maybe coming in at number two or three, regardless if you want to throw in other sports, but right up there in terms of the most winningest player in sports, you have to put Tom Brady. Now, Brady ain't going to accomplish what Bill Russell accomplished, which is what, winning a championship 80-something percent of the time that he was playing his professional sport, but you can make the argument, but still, I mean, when you speak about seven rings, when you speak about how no one is going to come close to Bill Russell's accomplishment of 11 championships in 13 years, I don't think anybody's going to come close, Patrick Mahomes is included, of... Tom Brady's seven Super Bowl rings and going to the Super Bowl 10 times. So that's the comparisons of Tom Brady and Bill Russell. When I think about Otto Graham, who really, you could make a strong argument that he is the greatest winner in NFL history or pro football history when you're speaking about how many championships that he won in the amount of time that he played. I think he um, I think he went to the NFL championship game or some championship game, football, pro football related, like 10 straight seasons or something like that. And he only played 10 or 11 years. And he was in the championship game each one of those seasons, albeit except for one or two. So when you're speaking about the ultimate winner, when you're speaking about records that could never be broken, Otto Graham, when I speak about the comparisons of Tom Brady and who I'm thinking about when I want to define his career, who I want to match his career, the similarities of other great athletes comparing in his career. Joe Montana, the guy who was... Arguably the greatest quarterback until Tom Brady came along. Barry Sanders, as I mentioned before, one of the all-time greats as far as football players and running backs is concerned, still 
uh, the last season that he played with the Lions was still at the top of his game or still one of the impact, impact players in the league, the greatest as far as one of the greatest in NBA history, the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the superstar, like my man Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The fact that uh, if you think about it, and players who have been champions, players who have been impact players later on in their careers where most of the great players before them had either fizzled out or sitting at the end of somebody's bench just uh, trying to get himself a paycheck. The fact that Kareem going into his 40s was still a focal point of a team that won championships with the Los Angeles Lakers. Similarity between that and Tom Brady, still at 43, 44 years of age, playing a major role in the success of a football team, and ultimately with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the age of 43, being one of the major cogs of a Super Bowl championship. Gordy Howe, a guy that also later on late in his career, advanced in his career, still being a player of circumstance, still being a player of impact like Tom Brady, into his 40s. George Foreman at the age of 45 winning himself a championship. Tom Brady at the age of 43 winning himself a championship. And then of course when you're speaking about the greatness of Derek Jeter and Joe Torre, the championships, how they're synonymous with each other. How great Popovich and Tim Duncan are synonymous with each other in terms of championships, in terms of accomplishments, in terms of all-time greats, in terms of coaching players, playing duos who have set records and success that might never be seen again. When you're speaking about Red Auerbach and Bill Russell, the fact that Auerbach and Russell were part of eight straight NBA championships. When you're speaking about Paul Brown and Otto Graham, two of the greatest at their position and at their position in the game who's ever uh, been in the National Football League. Chuck Nolan, Terry Bradshaw, team of the 70s for them to win four championships until Bill Belichick came with Tom Brady and shattered that uh, Mark of four Super Bowls between coach and player. Those are the type of uh, those are the type of things I think about when I'm thinking about the career. When I'm thinking about the legacy here of Tom Brady, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. And the most important, the most impressive thing about Brady's career. And look, he set records, which in all actuality will probably never be broken, or if they are going to be broken. The league will probably resemble flag football. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're speaking about for the rest of the 21st century. Well, we've got another, what, 78 years to go before we hit the 22nd century. I don't think there's going to be a player who's going to come close to some of the records that Brady has uh, accomplished. If you think about it, I mean, unless, as I mentioned before, the way that the NFL is moving towards safety, I mean, unless they just take off the pads and just start having guys play with flags on their on their uh, flags on them, and you know, seven on seven, I, I don't see how some of these accomplishments that Brady has done and how long he's done them. You're speaking in 22 seasons; he won almost 77 percent of his 316 regular season games. He went to 10 Super Bowls, won seven of them, five-time Super Bowl MVP. I mean, everything that Brady accomplished in terms of, look, man, this guy put up numbers that are Cy Youngish in terms of, look, no one's getting close to 316 losses and 511 wins as far as Cy Young is concerned and the complete games and all that kind of nonsense. Different sport, different game compared to what we're going on right now. But since we do keep records, Cy Young is going to be the guy who's going to have the most wins and most losses in Major League Baseball history. So in 22nd, 22 seasons, man, I don't know if any quarterback 
is going to play that long. I don't know if any quarterback at the age of 43 is going to be winning a Super Bowl MVP. I don't know if any quarterback who's going to be going to 10 Super Bowls. I don't know if any quarterback who's going to be winning 77% of games he played over 300. I don't know if any quarterback who are going to do those things. Those are outrageous. Those are get the hell out of here. Those are ridiculous. Don't even try. Don't even think about it. Yeah, that's like Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. That's like someone hitting 401 uh, or 406 in a season like Ted Williams. That's like uh, the unbreakable of unbreakable records. That's like someone averaging over 50 points a game and matching Wilt's 1961-62 season in which he averaged 50 points a game, 27 rebounds a game. The totality of um, what LeBron James is doing throughout his career, Tom Brady, is right up there in terms of, man, if you're thinking about becoming the greatest in this, that, and the other, and the record holder of this, that, and the other, as far as quarterbacks is concerned, move on to something else because that's Tom and Tom's great, 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 great grandkids are still going to be, you know, dancing in the street like Mark and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie speaking about the greatness of their great, 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 great grandfather, Tom Brady, and the records that he still has. But what separates Brady from when you speak about his greatness also. And I think this is something that cannot be lost when we speak about Tom Brady, the greatest of them all, one of the greatest of them all, where does he fit in the greatness of sports, athletes and everything else. What separates TB from every other athlete outside of Jim Brown and Barry Sanders and Rocky Marciana and Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Marvin Hagler is the fact that, you know what? We never saw Tom Brady fall off the cliff in terms of his ability to do some things. You know, we never saw Tom Brady embarrass himself. We never saw Tom Brady, the athlete, go into a season where it was like, yeah, you know what? He should have retired uh, He should have retired a season ago, or he should have retired two seasons ago. You saw Ben Roethlisberger this year in the way that he played, and you said, yeah, yeah, at the end of the season, Ben needs to hang it up. Yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty much done. You saw Peyton Manning his last year and some of the games that he had. And you were sitting there going, yeah, you know, he needs to, this is going to be the last season because, uh, yeah, that's not the Peyton Manning that I know and love. We saw that um, We saw that with Drew Brees when he had trouble throwing the ball 15 yards down the field. It was like, yeah, this is a situation where I think this might be, this needs to be Drew's last season. And, and, and there was strong anticipation that, yeah, this was going to be their last year. No one was shocked or no one was surprised when Drew Brees and Peyton Manning and those guys hung it up. Ben Roethlisberger hanging it up. You could you could see that, uh, you know, they had emptied the tank. Tom Brady had a lot more fuel left to give. Now, him playing toward 50, I don't know. Who knows when he was going to fall off that cliff, but we never saw it. We never felt sorry for Tom Brady, the athlete. We were never embarrassed for Tom Brady, the athlete, even at 43, 44 years old. And that's remarkable, man. That's amazing. The end of his career, when you're speaking about Tom Brady, it didn't resemble Willie Mays trying to play center field for the New York Mets and stumbling and bumbling around in the World Series against the Oakland uh, A's and batting 266 in his final season in 66 games before it was like, yeah, man, it's done. It's time for me to go. The end of the Tom Brady career didn't resemble Johnny Unitas in his last year in 1973 playing for not the Baltimore Colts, but for the San Diego Chargers, where in four games he completed 44% of his 76 passes for three touchdowns and seven interceptions and him stumbling and bumbling 
as he was being pummeled by the Pittsburgh Steelers in his last game as a starter. We didn't see when Tom Brady, at the end of his career, this guy wasn't running around trying to hang on and trying to uh, play some football and trying to play for you know, records or pride or something like that. I mean, this was a situation that 33 or 34, he was still a top guy. He didn't do the Shaquille O'Neal, where the last uh, three seasons of his career, he went from Phoenix, then he went to Cleveland to try to help King James win a championship and keep him in Cleveland before he took his talents to South Beach. So he played for Shaq. He played for Phoenix, then he played for Cleveland, then he played for Boston. And those years in Cleveland and Boston where he was fat and slow and now the shape and way past his prime and he was averaging 12 points and 9 rebounds. We didn't see that decline in Tom Brady's game. And we didn't see that decline in the importance and the impact that Tom Brady had in his last couple of years. He wasn't embarrassing himself in terms of the performance that he was putting. Like we see so many boxers, the greatest of them all, the trailblazer, the American and global icon, Muhammad Ali. We didn't you know, him losing to Trevor Burbick and him getting smashed by Larry Holmes. We didn't see, we didn't, we never felt sympathy. We never had tears in our eye for Tom Brady like we did when Ali was getting beat up by Larry Holmes and embarrassing himself against Trevor Burbick, losing to uh, Burbick in the Bahamas. You know, his last game for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, speaking about Brady, it didn't resemble anything like Dan Marino, the last game in that playoff game against Jacksonville where. He was 11 for 25 for 95 yards, two fumbles, two interceptions, in which a game that they were thoroughly embarrassed 62 to 7. We did, we never saw that from Tom Brady. So there we go, man. It's almost like Tom Brady is almost like Roberto Clemente. He's almost like Marilyn Monroe. He's almost like Otis Redding. He's, al- he's almost like James Dean. You know, he's almost like James Manfield. We never saw, we never saw Marilyn Monroe. One of the, the lasting impressions, or one of the things I think while, why, Marilyn Monroe has lasted so well in terms of her relevance and popularity and such over decades and generations and such is because Marilyn Monroe died young. So when Marilyn Monroe died, she was 36 years old. We never saw the 46, 56, 66, 76, 86 senior citizen Marilyn Monroe. She was long gone before those times happened. So what is etched in our memory bank forever is the... Still sexy and beautiful, but yet uh, precocious and yet still, uh, you know, whatever, Marilyn Monroe. Same thing with Otis Redding dying in a plane crash. We never got to see Otis Redding, 66 years old, going on the oldies tour. James Dean dying at 26 or dying, he died young. I know he died in his early 20s or mid-20s, something like that. We never, you know, we never had James Dean, you know, play roles of being a father and being a grandfather and being a patriarch or anything like that. You know, Patsy Cline, who died in a plane crash when she was still in the prime of her career. Now, the only reason why I'm saying those names is because of Tom Brady. Tom Brady escaped having any type of, oh, geez. Oh, there will be no embarrassing moments. Maybe him trying to catch a pass in the Super Bowl against the Eagles. But what I'm saying is there will be no seasons where he resembled Emma Smith playing for the Arizona Cardinals. There will be nothing like that. Just like Marilyn Monroe will stay beautiful forever. Tom Brady will be great forever. You will never find a season. You will never find a game. You will never find a moment where Tom Brady is nothing but uh, Tom Brady. Same with Roberto Clemente. Roberto Clemente perished in a plane crash, but guess what? We never saw the decline of Roberto Clemente. 
So, you know, those are the things. Those are the things. We could even maybe add Kobe Bryant. You can maybe add Rocky Marciano. But uh, for the most part, you know, those things are etched in stone forever. Unless at the age of 50, <laughs> Tom Brady gets bored and he wants to play football again. He's been, still been doing a TB12 and Giselle says go for it. Other than that, other than that, I don't think so. I mean, we're not gonna. he's not going to have a Michael Jordan with the Washington Wizards type of season. So good for him, man. Good for him. He's had the best career of any athlete past the age of 40 or 40 or, or above. When you're speaking about success is concerned, he won two, two Super Bowls and three chances. Won a Super Bowl MVP, as you remember, 40 and above. The uh, Brady and the Buccaneers, or first Brady and the Patriots beat, it, beat the Rams, and then they went ahead and beat Kansas City when Brady was with the Buccaneers, losing to Philadelphia uh, in the Super Bowl. And in that game against the Eagles, still with the New England Patriots, Brady threw for 505 flipping yards. Um, so if you, let me see here. So look, let's take a look at his record in terms of what it was after he turned 40 years old. Starting quarterback, wasn't a bench warmer, nothing like that. He went 60-21, and 21, 60 wins, 21 losses. He threw for almost 23,000 yards, 168 touchdown passes, 51 interceptions while completing... 65% of his, of his almost 3,100 pass attempts. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And his last season at 44 set an NFL record for completions and led the league in pass attempts, yardage, and touchdowns. Who's going to touch that their last season in the NFL? Oh, even if at the age of 44, at the age of 44, going to touch that. The best and most imp- impactful final NFL season since Jim Brown did it in 1965, where at the age of 25, not 44, in his ninth season, not 22nd, that Brown won the MVP while leading the league in rushing attempts and touchdowns. That was Jim Brown at 29 years old, still in his physical prime. Ninth season in the NFL, yes, different game and all those type of things, but still his ninth season, not his 22nd. At the age of 29, not 44. Again, times change and everything like that. I get it, but still. Absolutely, positively, undeniably remarkable what Tom Brady is as a football player. His dedication and everything to his craft. Unbelievable. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So when speaking about Tom Brady and what is he going to do next, I would like to see him in, um, I would like to see him in more commercials and such. I would like to see him just you know, kind of branch out and let people see who he is for real. Or at least let people see who he wants people to see, the good Tom Brady or whatever. I don't, I don't know the man personally. And anything that he, you know, brings out in terms of to show me and you and everybody else, whether we're speaking about his two television series, Tom versus Time and The Man in the Arena. I mean, we truly don't know what a human being is. And we truly don't know what a man or a woman is. Until, you know, we get to know them personally, and, and even then, we don't know. Asked uh, Ted Bundy's mother, asked the uh, sister of John Wayne Gacy, asked the wife of Dennis Rader. I mean, we, even the most intimate of partners don't know their man for real if that partner decides that he wants to keep it, cli- uh, want to keep it uh, private or the female wants to keep it private. But uh, I would just like to see Tom Brady just give us a little bit more about who he is and what he's all about and you know, the television commercials with him and Steph and um, yeah, I think it's Arena on the subway commercials. I, I, I love Brady in those commercials. Uh, when he has stepped out and done commercials and other things, I think he's great. 
I'd like to see him, you know, kind of venture out like uh, the like the Manning brothers did in terms of media and SNL and all those type of things. I would love to see him do more television things with uh, Eli and Peyton, whether they're speaking about football or not. You know, Eli has the series on uh, ESPN and Peyton had his series on ESPN. I would love to see uh, Tom Brady now that he has time to be to be doing those type of things. I, I know that he founded the health and wellness company TB12 Sports with uh, Alice Guerrero. And he also founded the media company Religion of Sports and the Brady brand clothing line. So he's got other irons in the fire to keep him busy. But, uh, you know, I, I would just like to see more of Tom Brady and, you know, not unshackled or not under the, uh, not, not now that he's outside of the thumb of Bill Belichick that he could stop, he could start really being Tom Brady and he's been unleashed or anything like that. But I'd just like to see more of the human being Tom Brady because from the outside looking in he seems like a seems like a really good guy so yeah Tom Brady man congratulations 22 years a remarkable unbelievable career that you had here's hoping that the second half of your career in terms of just living and being a man is just as fruitful and it's just as interesting entertaining and successful I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what is happening in the world of sports. Oh, goody. I'm recording this while the beginning of the Milwaukee Bucks LA Clipper game is on. One of the things that I really, one of the things I didn't uh, anticipate or didn't realize how much of an effect it would have on me when I decided that or when I agreed to uh, become the uh, permanent sub up at uh, Mesquite, which would inquire me, which would require me, excuse me to uh, go up to Mesquite, take that hour and a half drive, 85 miles one way, this, that, and the other five days a week. Once I get there with the kids, the students and everything, love it, absolutely love it. It's fantastic. I'm enjoying myself more than uh, ever before, dealing with the kids and learning about them and them learning about me and growing and just the community out there, learning about the community and such, the good, the bad, and everything else in between, which is helping me grow as a human being. So, all of the things, no regrets whatsoever. I hope that I can do this uh, for a long time. But one thing that uh, I really didn't take into account was some of the flexibility that I had in terms of, uh, you know, watching sports, getting ready for sports, pulling my stuff together and doing other things. Uh, because 
me waking up at 4.45 in the morning just isn't like kosher. You know, it's just very hard for me to do. I know some people who can wake up early in the morning and they've done it so many times that their body gets acclimated and used to it. So for them, they don't even need an alarm to go wake up at that time. And they're pretty consistent in terms of when they go to bed and when they wake up. So for them waking up early in the morning, I mean, hell, what Mark Wahlberg and The Rock, I mean, these guys can actually get up early in the morning and do workouts. So they're not the only two. I'm quite sure millions of people can do that. But for me, regardless of when I go to uh, sleep, whether it be at 1 o'clock in the morning to wake up at 4.45 or maybe at 11 o'clock or 10.30 to uh, wake up at 4.45, it's no different. When I wake up at 4.45 in the morning, I feel like death. I feel absolutely, positively, undeniably horrible. For the first two or three minutes, I'm laying in bed and I'm just like, I hate life. I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate everyone. I curse everybody. I just absolutely flip and hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Then I gradually wake up and after five minutes, I just get my fat, lazy, pathetic self out of bed and start the day. But, um... Because of that, and because of the fact that, you know, I go up there to Mesquite and when I have to go back and trying to wake up consecutive days at 4.45 and then drive up to Mesquite when I'm not going to be spending the night up at the hotel so I don't have to wake up at 4.45 and me driving back and forth. It just, for me, physically, it just takes its toll. Physically and mentally, it just, it just takes its toll. So one of the things which leads me to uh, the point I wanted to make was Man, you know, out here in Vegas, we have the Lakers channel and we have the uh, Fox Sports channel in which we can watch the uh, Clippers. So for me, I always took advantage of, they have several replays, especially with the Lakers broadcast. They have several replays of the game. Normally about an hour or half an hour after the game when you're speaking about the Lakers, if the game is an afternoon game or early game with the Clippers, the replay is normally like around 8 or 9 o'clock. If it's a 7.30 game out here, normally the replay starts at around 11, 11.30, sometimes midnight. But the thing is, is that I could actually, you know, if I wanted to, I could actually go ahead and do some other things while the game was being shown live, Lakers-Clippers, and then go back. Um, I didn't watch the game while it was uh, live because I wanted to do some other things. I was like, that's no problem. I'll just go ahead and I'll just watch the replay. Well, I can't be watching any replays at 12 o'clock at night with the uh, Clippers and the Lakers, whose replays started like around 10 or 11. I can't be watching them games, man, because if I have to wake up at 445, ain't no way I'm going to be watching the Clippers up until like 1 o'clock and then try to uh, drive 85 miles per hour at 5 o'clock in the morning on three and a half hours of sleep. That ain't cutting it. So, And then try to function as a human being for the rest of the day. So... That's one of the, um, I guess you could say, that's one of the drawbacks of accepting the position that I did up in Mesquite. But if that's the only thing, which is the only thing, which is uh, I can consider a negative, the positives definitely, definitely outweigh the negatives. But Clippers and the Bucks tonight. This should be pretty good. And Giannis is playing. How about that? Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay. Back to football. As you know, if you don't know, let me tell you, my favorite football team is the Washington Commanders. We don't have to worry about the Washington uh, um, football team or anything like that anymore. They have changed their name to the Washington Commandos. Woohoo! Well, the more things change the name, the more things stay the same. Daniel Snyder, can we please... 
please get rid of Daniel Snyder. We speak about, you know, Brian Flores wanting change in the NFL after, uh, you know, showing us, you know, putting the spotlight on some of the uh, deficiencies of the hiring practices and tanking games and violating NFL rules by certain owners, all that kind of stuff. Hey, man, Daniel, nothing, no NFL owner, now that Jerry Richardson is gone, no NFL owner can approach the the dysfunction and the embarrassment of Daniel Snyder. Who's at it again? Who's at it again? Who's at it again? Why I remain a fan of this team, I'll never know. Why I remain a fan of this team, I'll never know. Why knowing who the owner is and what the outcome of me being a fan of this team is going to be for the rest of my life as long as Daniel Snyder is the owner of the Washington Washington Commandos, Commanders, get used to that Washington Commanders why am I still a fan of these clowns I don't know I don't know well new allegations allegations have been levied against Washington Commanders owner Daniel Snyder at a hearing before uh, a congressional committee Tiffany Johnson God bless her heart a former marketing and events coordinator for the team told a congressional committee that she was strategically placed next to Snyder at a work dinner not to discuss business but to allow him, Dan Snyder, to place his hand on her thigh under the table. Or during the time that they were at dinner, Miss Johnson, who was sitting next to Daniel Snyder, placed his hand on her thigh under the table during dinner. We don't learn, we don't learn, we don't learn, do we? So what Ms. Johnson told congressional members or Congress members, she said, quote, I learned that job survival meant I should continue my conversation with another co-worker rather than call out Dan Snyder right then in the moment. I also learned later that evening how to awkwardly laugh when Dan Snyder aggressively pushed me toward his limo with his hand on my lower back, encouraging me to ride with him to my car. I learned how to commun- I learned how to continue to say no even though a situation was getting more awkward, uncomfortable and physical. I learned that the only reason Dan Snyder removed his hand from my back and stopped pushing me toward his limo was because his attorney intervened and said, "Dan, Dan, this is a bad idea, a very bad idea, Dan." I learned that I should remove myself from Dan's grip while his attorney was just distracting him. What is going on? What is going on? I've got to ask you guys, man, why is this guy still an owner of a team? Again, I understand the I understand the power of the NFL. Teflon Don, I understand all that. And I understand when it comes to uh, most uh, women's rights, the fact that, uh, you know, most males or whatever, we kind of are ambivalent about it. But but, but but what is going on? What is going on with this being so blatant? I mean, it's going to be just as easy to say, ah, she's lying. Is that it? Is that what we're going to be talking about? Is that the only thing that's going to make this go away? Oh, yeah, um, we'll have an investigation. And, uh, oh, by the way, did I get, forget to mention that uh, next week, the Green Bay Packers are going to be playing the Cleveland Browns right here on Sunday Night Football. I mean, is that what it's going to be? Oh, so Daniel Snyder is accused of doing what? And this is what happened? Oh, that's, um, that's, 
That's that's terrible. Hey, look, Josh Allen is going to be playing Patrick Mahomes next week. Replay or, you know, uh, you know, how about that? Everybody, take a look at that. Uh, don't look at what's happening over here. Take a look. We've got Aaron Rodgers versus, you know, I mean, is that what's going to be the situation? Is this what the NFL is all about? I, I, what, I mean, again, what happened? Should there be some type of criminal investigation outside of the NFL's jurisdiction? Shouldn't this be a situation where Dan Snyder should be investigated by somebody in terms of, I don't know, law? I don't know. In an email statement from the team, Snyder apologized again for a past misconduct that took place in his organization, but denied the new organi- the new allegations. Okay, all right, mm-hmm. sure, sure. In other in other news, um, there has been a body found, bones found up in Washington, right where the Green River Killer was doing all of his murdering of prostitutes. But but reached from his isolation cell in solitary confinement in Walla Walla, uh, Washington, the state prison for Washington's con- uh, convicts, Gary Ridgway, the the Green River Killer, said, "Nope, that wasn't me. Nope, you know I've killed women before, but this one, nope, not this one. Uh uh-uh. uh Well, Gary, it's, it's right where we have found all the other bodies where you buried or where you killed." Where you strangled and raped. No, well, yep, 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 but this one is different. This one is not mine. All the other ones, I confess to those. But this one, nah. Are you going to believe him? So in a situation like this, are you going to believe Daniel Snyder? Where it was like, yeah, look, I've been, I've had, I've, I've made bad decisions before. Past misconduct that took place in my organization. Past misconducts, huh? But this one, no, never. I, this one, there's just no way. I know I've done the same thing over and over again, which I have addressed and have uh, confessed to. But this one, no, this one, I'm completely clear. Jeez. I have acknowledged and apologized multiple times in the past for the misconduct which took place at the team and the harm suffered by some of the some of our valued employees. Incredibly how he values employees when her, when he's allowing himself and others to harass them, but okay. I apologize again for this conduct and fully support the people who have been victimized and have come forward to tell their story. No, yes, I, yes, I'm quite sure you did. While past conduct at the team at the team was unacceptable, even though I let it go on, the allegations leveled against me personally in today's roundtable, many of which are well over 13 years old, are outright lies. So, um. Because of so the statute of limitations in terms of sexual harassment. So if it's more than ten years, I guess they're lies. Is that what you're saying there, uh, Mr. Schneider? So you know this Tiffany Johnson, she's a liar. So you're basically calling this woman a liar, not misremembered, not maybe it was another employee, maybe she went to visit another organization and the owner of that organization. Uh, groped her and did these type of things. But no, not me. It could have been me. And besides, it could have been me because that was over 13 years old. These allegations which are coming up right now. He continues in a statement, which he probably didn't write. I unequivocally deny having participated in any such conduct at any time and with respect to any person. When you just mentioned the fact of your mistransgression. Now, you didn't come out and say that uh, I have fondled or I have uh, you know sexually harassed women, but his misdeeds and misconducts i can only imagine what that can be i'm going to guess in the culture that he had in terms of 
uh, sexual misconduct and others, and the fact that there were so many accusations leveled at him, that, uh, yeah, this is true, that Miss Johnson is telling the truth. Sorry, this is not the 1950s, Dan. This is not the 1960s. This ain't Mad Men. This ain't some other type of bullshit where women are now marginalized by, you know, this bullshit. This ain't, well, you know, you work with the team. You should have known better. This isn't, well, if you dress that way, you know, and if you're, you're a very attractive young lady, so as attractive as you are, you make yourself to be looking that good and you wear that outfit. I mean, what is a man supposed to do? All of that ignorance, all of that bullshit, all of that nonsense that we put up with, that women put up with for decades upon decades, thank goodness in the year of 2022, that doesn't fly anymore. So, yeah, I'm going to put Dan Snyder, just like I put Matt Lauer, and just like I put, uh, um, oh, who else was accused of uh, sexual misconduct throughout the years? Bill Cosby and all others. I'm, I'm going to go with the females on this one. There, there is no need, there is no reason, and I don't know Miss Johnson, I don't know Tiffany Johnson, I haven't interviewed her, I haven't spoke, spoken with her, and I wasn't around her when these allegations took place. But um, just putting some of the common sense things together, the culture that the Washington football team, the upper management had during that time that she was working, some of the uh, uh, allegations that were leveled, yeah, I'm going to go with Miss Johnson. So... I don't know what we're going to do again, a situation where it's always amazing to me where the owners are like, we really can't do anything because that starts a slippery slope. Slippery slope to what? Slippery slope to what? Yeah. I mean, is there any, you, you know what? I'm sorry to say this guys, but if you're concerned that, that um, these allegations, if they're true, could cause Daniel Snyder to lose ownership of his team. If you're scared about that because you don't want something like that coming back to you, man, what's in your closet? Man, what have you been doing? And man, maybe we should do some digging. Maybe some, somebody should do something in terms of if you're that scared, if you're that scared of, as an NFL owner, I mean, it's a long drop from the allegations that have been leveled against Daniel Snyder so maybe you're afraid because you told one female employee one day that you're, you look nice. I mean, it's a little, uh, I'm interested to find out exactly what are the owners scared of? And again, look at the league that you're in. Look at the league that, unless you're a serial rapist running around the community raping women, you're an owner of the NFL franchise. What's going to happen to you? you a, you're a billionaire. What's going to happen to you? So, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is, again, you know, this has just been... And look, I'll give credit where um, credit is due. All right? Snyder was making decisions to change the image of himself and his organization in a positive way. Right? He hired uh, Ron Rivera two years ago, making him one of the few minority head coaches. Team president Jason Wright is also a minority in 2021 in July. Schneider accepted the NFL's $10 million fine and instructions to make changes after an independent investigation revealed Washington's toxic uh, workplace culture. He elevated his wife, Tanya, to co-CEO to take over the day-to-day duties. And, you know, so so there has been some some window dressing. There has been some, some really some concrete positive signs of Snyder doing the right thing, making Julie Donaldson the first woman 
to be a regular on-air member of an NFL team's radio broadcast booth. You know, hired Martin Mayhew from uh, at the GM, uh, the only uh, team with the president, GM, and coach from minority groups. So, okay, all right, that's fine. I'll give you credit for that. But, man, you know, old dogs don't turn over new tricks. Old dogs don't learn new tricks, especially when them old dogs are billionaires. Especially when, how long has it been that Daniels, that someone has told Daniel Snyder to do something and he says, okay, let me go ahead and do it. I mean, when you're a billionaire, of course, I've never been a billionaire, so I wouldn't know because I've never been a billionaire. I mean, hell, I've never even been a thousandaire for the most part. But, uh, facetious. But for, you know, who, who's going to be telling this man what to do? And if these allegations are true, I mean, you know, all the other stuff that he's doing while I, I, I thank him for it, while I acknowledge it, while I give him credit for it, I mean, how, how much of that is to say faced or how much of that is to have him be able to be free and guilt-free in his other, you know, in his other pursuits of uh, being a jackass, namely harassing women. And when you're a billionaire, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Here I am talking about when you're a billionaire. How do I know? I've never been a billionaire, but... I can imagine you get the fruits and the goodies and the candy and of, of life thrown at you, man. And so it's kind of hard to uh, it's kind of hard to give up them old tricks, man. When you're a billionaire, and you know how women are. You know, money, women, money, women, money, women. Sorry, ladies. Truth is truth. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm quite sure there'll be plenty of women that he has harassed that have been like, "Oh, Danny boy, you just a man. Just keep paying for my shit, and I'll be happy with you treating me like garbage." See the skanks, see the whores. See the scumbags, which are Floyd Mayweather's uh, uh, girlfriends and girls who, who uh, hang around that that piece of shit. So you know it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to give up, you know. And, and it's possible that you know maybe he sees faults in some of the things that he's done, and because of pressure, because of other things that he decided to go ahead and with the minority hiring. That's okay. He's a he's a racist, but not a sexist. You know, you can be. You don't have to be both. You can be one or the other. You can be a sexist and still not be a racist. Or you can be, you know, a, a, a racist and not a sexist. You know what I'm saying? So who knows, man? All I know is that he has torpedoed, I mean, the Washington football organization, man. From a man who grew up there, from a man who still has ties in that area, will always have ties in that area, will always love that area. Hopefully will spend my last days living in that area that um, I know how important the Washington football team is to the community, the fabric of its community. I know how important it is. It's more important than, it's more important than the, uh, the capital. To the locals of the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, the Washington football team is more important than any of the landmarks that, uh, that uh, we went in the summers to go see. In the, that, that when we took the, in elementary school, we took the school bus down and, took the visits and took the trips and learned about the history and the White House and all that kind of stuff for the locals there who live in the Washington, Washington D.C. metropolitan area, especially those who were born and raised. The Washington football team, you grew up with the nickname of Redskins or the football team and now the commanders. It's almost like a generation just detached in terms of what it really means to be a fan of that franchise. When I was growing up and 
Jack Ken Cook with the owner, a lousy human being with a fabulous owner. And you had Joe Gibbs, and you had the Hogs, and you had Doug Williams, and you had Joe Thiesman, and you had John Riggins, and you had Alvin Monk, and you had Gary Clark, and you had uh, Dexter Manley, and you had Charles Smith, and you had Joe Jacoby, and you had Richie Pettibone at the defensive coordinator, and you had um, the line coach whose name I forgot because he died a few years ago, whose name I'll probably remember when we go to the boogie break, but just RFK Stadium rocking and rolling, the reason why I became such a huge football fan. All of that stuff was because of the football team, of the Washington Now Commanders. This generation, since Daniel Snyder has been an owner now for 23 seasons, 23 seasons, 23, there are adults who have no idea, no recollection, no passion, no connection to what my generation grew up as far as being Washington football fans, as far as being, as far as being devotees, loyalists, to the Washington professional football team. The next generation has no idea because all they know is Daniel Snyder. All they know is Jim Zorn. All they know is um, Steve Spurrier. All they know is for one year, Marty Schottenheimer. All they know is for a quick little nostalgia break, Joe Gibbs coming back. All they know is Jason Campbell. All they know is Jeff George. All they know is washed up, old washed up Bruce Smith and Artema Echeleta and Antoine Randall L and Deion Sanders and Dana Stubblefield and Albert Hainsworth, who we gave a hundred million dollars to and all of those things. That's, that's what the younger generation knows. If you're 26, 25 years old, you could be married. You could be having a couple of kids, whatever, working at your job, moving on up, not to the East side because you live in DC, not New York, but Throughout your whole life, you have no idea, you have no connection about what it was for a younger generation to grow up being Washington football fans. And that's the reason why I'm quite sure there's ambivalence right now. Not only because D.C. being the metropolitan, major metropolitan uh, area in the world, that you have people from all over the world, all over the country with different ties to teams and events and cultures and stuff moving into the D.C. area. Because DC, the DC area has expanded so much in terms that it's uh, you know you know, we have again people from all over the world being the major metropolitan uh, city, but the fact that uh, they just don't have any type of connection to the team, so their loyalty is not going to be forever. Which is the reason why you take a look at the uh, attendance and you take a look at uh, what's going on with the team right now. That's a team in Washington I don't recognize. The team that I grew up with and loved, and one of the reasons why I became such a major sports fan, that team that's playing in Washington right now, or not even in Washington, in Landover, Maryland right now, I don't recognize them. I don't recognize them at all. Are they living? Not Landover, Maryland. Not with the Cap Center. We're out there in Maryland. I don't know. But uh, at FedEx Field. I, I don't recognize those guys. 23 seasons, Snyder's been the owner of the team. This team has had six playoff appearances and two postseason victories. I mean, that would be a good two years for us when I was growing up with those with my Washington football team. So, you know, right this past season, Washington ranked second to last in attendance in the 32-team league. And if it wasn't for the other team's fans coming, we probably would be dead last. So why is that possible? Growing up, that would never have been possible. That would have, that would have never been like something where it's like that would have been fathomable. I mean, it was a situation where there were 
you know, season ticket folks looking to be become season ticket holders that had to wait, I don't know, like 175 years before they got an opportunity. That's how strong and loyal the fan base in love was for the uh, Washington football team. You know, we had fans going from Dover, Delaware. Well, Dover, Delaware. Delaware was Baltimore Colts at the time. But I mean, we had folks from, I don't know, man, from uh, just right outside the Montgomery County, you know, uh, line, PG County line, all the way down to the Carolinas that were fans of the Washington football team. And now look at us now, man. Look at us now, and it's because of that owner, Daniel Snyder. So, again, thank you for allowing me to... Uh, Go ahead and lay on the couch and <laughs> get this out of my system. But uh, Daniel Snyder, again, being you know, alleging that uh, someone alleging that uh, he was uh, participating in inappropriate acts with a female, one of his female employees. The more things change with the Washington Commanders, the more things stay the same when you have Daniel Snyder as your owner. Last segment of the program, last segment of the podcast, Wendell's World and Sports. So glad that you can listen to my podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You know, one of the things I haven't mentioned is the Super Bowl, right? The Super Bowl is supposed to be happening this week. I just can't. I just can't. Now, I do it once a week, this podcast. If I was doing it more than once a week, well, of course, as we get closer to the podcast that I would be doing, closer to the Super Bowl, I would be doing more, you know, what do the Cincinnati Bengals need to do to win? What does it mean for the LA Rams to be playing at home? What's going to be happening with Matthew Stafford, Joe Burrow? I mean, all of the storylines and all these things in terms of the Super Bowl. I would get into more of that, but the week of the Super Bowl, I just really don't care. It's like the end of the season, and I'm starting to turn my attention now more toward the NBA college basketball because Georgetown Hoyas, my Georgetown Hoyas are an absolute train wreck. I I really can't get into college basketball, which I really hate because I do love the game of college basketball. I really do. And I still want to see what Chet Holmgren and some of the um, NBA draft or NBA uh, pro prospects are doing and would love to see which team is doing what, where and how and getting ready for the NCAA tournament. I would love to do all those things. Believe me, I would love to. But Every time I start watching a basketball game that doesn't include Georgetown, and it's, it's like Kentucky or it's like Duke or Arizona's having a great year or um, Alabama, who's having a very good year, and um, Gonzaga and UCLA and such, and I see that seven teams are projected to be in the Big East tournament. So games like <clears throat> games like Villanova and UConn or 
Providence and, you know, Seton Hall and those uh, teams and those games. I would love to watch those games, but every time I do, I can't enjoy it because I get so depressed because I know that Georgetown is not even close. They're not close. You couldn't see, George Georgetown couldn't see those teams in terms of them being good with a telescope as they've now lost a, z- a zillion games in a row. And we have zero talent. No talent. Am I giving up on Patrick Ewing? I don't know. He can coach. He's a good in-game coach. But coach, man, you need a GM. <laughs> you, you need you need a talent evaluator to go ahead, man, and start getting you some more five stars or getting some guys that can play. Get some guys that can play at a level to where you can make the tournament. Because the guys we got going on right now, it ain't happening. You take a look at the talent of the teams that we're playing that we're getting blown out by. The the reason is simple. The gap in talent is tremendous. I'm watching guys put up career nights against Georgetown where I'm sitting there going, man, he's way better than anything we've got. Anything we've got. And that includes Aminu Muhammad, who I hope he's going to stay for a few years regardless of who the coach is because he needs to, but we're at we're at rock bottom. And I'm telling you, we haven't even, you know what? We're at the bottom, but we're not even at rock bottom yet. Uh, we're still going to get embarrassed. We still got a few more games where we're going to be embarrassed big time. Marquette on the road is going to embarrass us. Connecticut at home is going to embarrass us. Villanova on the road is going to embarrass us. So we've got a few more, we've got a few more games where, <clears throat> where it's going to be devastatingly embarrassing. To the fan base, to the, you know, to the alum and all this kind of stuff in terms of, we haven't hit rock bottom yet. Wait until we go up to Marquette and play them again. Wait until UConn comes to uh, our house and they they decide that they want to beat us by 40. They're going to do it. If UConn wants to beat us by 40, there's nothing we can do to stop them. If Villanova wants to beat us by 30 at home because they're feeling froggy, there's nothing that we can do to stop them. Nothing. We don't have the talent. We don't let the players. If UConn wants to put up, a, you know, wants to want to score 110 on us, they're going to. There's nothing that they can we can do to stop that. Nothing. So, yeah, <laughs> college basketball. Not really a big fan of it this year. Not really a big fan of it this year. Not at all. I'll watch, but once we get closer to March Madness, but eesh, like Georgetown Hall, you stink out loud. So. Um, I don't know, maybe later on in the week with my YouTube channel, I might say something about the uh, Super Bowl. But for the most part, you know, leading up to the game, I'm not really super into that stuff. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Uh, Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us very quickly because the the NBA trade deadline is happening on Thursday. And there's some news now that have been going around talking about, hey, man, could the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers be serious about making a trade that involves James Harden and Ben Simmons. Harden is reportedly frustrated with the Brooklyn Nets organization. According to Sam Anik of The Athletic, Harden is unhappy with how he has been utilized in Brooklyn. He's also taken issue with the Nets as a whole, rather than just teammate Kyrie Irving, despite speculation regarding division between them. NBA insider Ian Bagley followed up on the report by saying that the Nets players are said to be frustrated feeling their championship aspirations are being undermined by Harden's alleged interest in being traded to the 76ers. Mm-hmm. 
Sam Sarania of The Athletic and Stadium reported on Friday that the Nets are open to discussing a trade with the Philadelphia 76ers that would send point guard Ben Simmons and more to Brooklyn for uh, for Harden prior to the February 10th uh, trade deadline. Now, Steve Nash has come out and said, no, 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 that's ridiculous. James Harden isn't going anywhere uh, before the February uh, 10th deadline. Don't even think about it. Don't even talk about it. Don't even deal with it. I'm not even dealing with that, this, that, and the other. James Harden is going to be our guy, and James Harden is going to be the guy that's going to be on this team February 11th when the trade deadline is over. Let me see here. Let me see here. The Brooklyn Nets do not plan to trade James Harden prior to Thursday's NBA trade deadline. This is Nick Ferdell of ESPN. Nets coach Steve Nash made that clear before Sunday's game against the Denver Nuggets as Harden's name continues to pop up in trade speculation. Yes, Nash said that's correct. Nash also said Harden has repeatedly told him he wants to stay in Brooklyn for the foreseeable future. What does that mean, foreseeable future? What does that mean? Like he wants to finish out the year and then go to another team? I mean, what are we talking about Talking about here? So all of this stuff swirling around, you know, who knows who's just, you know, making noise, who's who's playing nice, who is uh, being Nick Saban when he was with the coach of Miami, when he was with the coach of the Miami Dolphins, he said over and over and over and over again, no, I'm not going to be the coach of Alabama. No, I'm not going anywhere. No, I'm going to be staying with the Miami Dolphins. No, I have no interest in going back to college. No, I haven't spoken to Alabama. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then what happened? Alabama became the next destination for Nick Staben. So, hey, man, you know, you take all of this. No, 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 no. You take all this reporting and you take all of these comments made by the folks involved with a grain of salt. Who knows? This season, Harden is averaging 22.5 points, 10 assists, 8 rebounds, 2 three-pointers made a game, 1.3 steals per game. He's on his 10th consecutive All-Star team, but he's shooting just uh, 41% from the field, which is his lowest number since his rookie year with the Oklahoma City Fender in 2009-2010. As we know, the Nets are flailing. 29-23. and Let me see if they beat the uh, Denver Nuggets today. Doggone it. I wanted to see that game, but I started watching Hugh Hefner and the Playboy thing on A&E, and I completely forgot all about that. So, let me go ahead and take a looky-looky. Let me looky-looky. Oh, Denver blew out uh, Brooklyn 124-104, so I didn't miss much. So, now the Brooklyn Nets record is 29-24. and They are 2-9 and nine since Durant's absence and are in an eight-game losing streak. So, not good times in Brooklyn with the Nets. Here's the deal right here which um, I think with the uh, Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers, it's a mystery wrapped in a beautiful mystery in terms of what we know about Ben Simmons. On paper, in theory, I think that the Brooklyn Nets would be a better basketball team if not just for this year, but for the foreseeable future, two, three, four, five years down the line, I think that the Brooklyn Nets would be a better basketball team if they required if they acquired Ben Simmons. But here's the thing. We we don't know what Ben Simmons is all about right now. Has anybody seen him play? Does he have any video? I mean, what type of shape is he in both physically and mentally? We don't know. Because if he comes to the Philadelphia 76ers, or excuse me, if he goes to the Brooklyn Nets in this trade, then he's going to be required to come right in and play at the level that uh, made him one of the better young players in the NBA, despite the fact that he couldn't shoot. So is James Harden, excuse me, is uh, uh, Ben Simmons at that level? 
if he comes in, there's no way after missing half the season that he's going to be able to come in and be the defensive stalwart and the point forward, point guard, or be the impact player, the defensive player that you want him to be. And with the Brooklyn Nets reeling, that's what they're going to need for him to be, especially if they're only going to have Kyrie Irving for games on the road. So you, you, you can't have Kevin Durant out there doing everything. So, and this is when we're speaking about when Kevin Durant comes back. So how much ground, if the Philadelphia 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets make this trade for James Harden and Ben Simmons and Tyrese Maxey or um, or uh, Tobias Harris or whoever they're going to throw in with Ben Simmons, if the Nets and the um, 76ers make this deal, well, what the hell kind of shape is the Brooklyn Nets are going to be in while they get acclimated to Simmons and Harris and everybody else? And meanwhile, you're not going to have Kyrie Irving for half the season. And you're not going to have Kevin Durant for a little bit because he's still injured. What's going to be the totality of what's going to happen when he finally comes back? Are the Brooklyn Nets going to be the seventh seed? Are they going to be the eighth seed? If you take a look at the standings in the Eastern Conference, man, it's really jumbled up when you're speaking about the seeds for um, teams that are vying for the playoffs right now. So you're speaking about Kevin Durant. We don't know when he's going to be coming back, whether it be later on this month or Whenever, I mean, right now, the Brooklyn Nets are the seventh seed. Now, they're four and a half games behind Miami in the Eastern Conference. They're three games behind the 76ers for the um, fifth seed. But, I mean, you're speaking about right now the Brooklyn Nets being the seventh seed, but they're only a game and a half ahead of the Charlotte Hornets for the ninth seed. So you could be having a strong possibility if this trade is made for Simmons to go from Philadelphia to Brooklyn, along with Harris or Maxi or whoever else, with no KD playing, with Kyrie being part-time, and the Nets struggling right now, what's going to be the record of Brooklyn by the time KD comes back? Let's say if he comes back later on this month. Like, he's going to be missing the All-Star game. That's going to be the 18th. So what, if, what happens if he comes back later on this month in February? What's going to be the state of the Brooklyn Nets? And once he gets back, do you realize the pressure that Kevin Durant, that the pressure of, of, of uh, what Kevin Durant's going to have to do to get himself to uh, basically get the Brooklyn Nets back to uh, championship contention? Because when you make this trade and when you make these acquisitions that you did for Durant and Harden and Kyrie, even if you go, go ahead and trade one of the trio and James Harden to get Ben Simmons, the objectives remain the same winning championships so how much time are you going to have and how much how realistic are your chances of winning a championship when you have Kyrie out playing only half the time you have Kevin Durant coming back and you have Ben Simmons what kind of shape he's going to be in mentally physically to uh, help the team this season with all that being said I'm not paying James Harden 50 something million dollars a year for four years at the age of 32. I'm not paying James Harden 50-something million dollars when he's 36, 37 years old. That I'm not doing. I mean, this season might be a throwaway in terms of the Nets winning a championship if they go ahead and they acquire Ben Simmons. But down the road, Simmons is more versatile. Simmons is a better defender, which the Brooklyn Nets need. He is a more versatile player, and he's a younger player, and he costs a lot less than what you would be paying a 35, 36, 37-year-old James Harden. Daryl Morey is known to uh, shake it up a little bit and do some things to, uh, you know, win that championship and win it now. So him and Joel Embiid, it would be interesting 
it would be frightful on nights when both of those guys are clicking. But uh, how well is James Harden going to age with his contract? Is he going to be Russell Westbrook? Or is he going to be Chris Paul in terms of at an advanced age is still making a lot of money? Chris Paul on one end of the spectrum, still one of the more valuable players in the NBA. Russell Westbrook now on, what, his fourth team with the Lakers and not uh, contributing on a very consistent basis as the Lakers are scuttling themselves to uh, live up to season's expectations. So we will see. All right, Wendell Wallace, I am done. I am out of here. Be good to each other. Be good to self. Do all those things that you need to do. Peace, love, happiness, please, for the sake of our children and their children and their children's children. Let's see what we can do to move this world in a place of unity, love, respect, and uh, harmonious interactions, if we could, regardless of who you are, where you're from, and all those things. If we could do that, that would be awesome. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Peace and music. (laughs) 